This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 141, the 11th part of the Grand Canyon Rim to Rim series to enhance your next Grand Canyon run. Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon. I recently published my book, Grand Canyon Rim to Rim History, which included many newly discovered stories that I had not previously included in this podcast. So in this episode, I will revisit the years between 1950 to 1964 and share what was happening in the inner canyon, including one of the greatest hoaxes ever in the canyon. Connect with history this October. Come run my 50 or 100 mile race on the historic Pony Express Trail in the West Desert of Utah. Run in the hoof prints of history in the true Wild West and come meet me. Go to PonyExpress100.org and run on Friday, October 20th, 2023. Mm-hmm. Run, come see what this river has done. Carve the walls of Grand Canyon with the colors of the rising sun. In 1950, Two 15-year-old boys from Los Angeles discovered that hiking rim to rim was a lot harder than they thought. While resting down at Phantom Ranch, they ran up an $8 unpaid bill and then decided that there was no way that they were going to hike back up. It was reported, So the two youths borrowed a pair of mules at the ranch and rode to the top, tethering the mules at the head of Bright Angel Trail. The boys next headed south, stopping en route to Williams, Arizona at a service station where they pilfered $20 from the station's cash drawer. Their trip ended there after some officers arrested them. On October 29, 1950, the Phantom Ranch caretaker received a telephone call from a Mrs. Jerry Evans of Cody, Wyoming, in the afternoon requesting dinner and overnight accommodations for three people calling from the gauging station on the Colorado River near Black Bridge. There was nothing unusual in this as late hikers often showed up at Phantom Ranch around dinner time. But then Mrs. Evans walked up to the ranch attractively attired in a fresh green silk dress complete with matching handbag and of all things high-heeled pumps. The caretaker Mrs. Malone did a double-take. The lady said, We're the folks that landed on the sandbar in the helicopter a little while ago. The pilot, Edwin Montgomery, walked in and explained that his helicopter's motor had conked out over the canyon, but he had glided to a sandbar, and they walked a half-mile to Blackbridge. They established a record as the first Phantom Ranch guests to arrive by helicopter. The next day, the three rode out of the canyon on mules. A few days later, Montgomery and two of his employees made repairs. When they attempted to fly out, they flew only about a mile and a half downstream before the motor stopped and the plane dropped into the water. A team of mules pulled the craft out of the water. There it sat near the bottom of the Bright Angel Trail. 
The machine had to be dismantled and packed out of the canyon by mule. Neglect was noticed in 1950 because the federal government had cut back on Grand Canyon funding for eight years, starting with World War II. Appropriations to the park were only about 50 cents per park visitor. Rotting benches were seen and trails were in poor shape. Rangers were only paid $1.50 per hour and could not work overtime. Some new projects were started. A water storage system was built at Cottonwood Campground to help deal with occasional water outages. A crew of eight worked there for three months. In 1951, about 8,000 people rode the mule train to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and about 1,000 stayed overnight at Phantom Ranch. Hundreds of additional people descended on foot. The 1952 winter snowfall was so severe that in January, the Kaibab Trail was closed for the winter. Two employees of Utah Parks Company rode a snowcat to the North Rim to repair the telephone line, but they found the wires broken by so many fallen trees and in such a tangled condition that the repair work was abandoned. Blackbridge received a new coat of paint. It took two men six days to paint the 440-foot-long bridge hanging 100 feet above the river. On June 13, 1951, Havasupai chief Big Jim died at the age of 95. He had been born in the 1850s at Indian Garden. Big Jim had been a guide for years in the area as his homeland became a tourist destination. On June 17, 1951, the first canyon guide died while on the job. Lee Smith and another guide, Lee Roberts, had gone about 100 yards down Bright Angel Trail to assist a third guide who was having trouble lining up some unmounted mules he was taking down to bring a hiking party back from the bottom of the Grand Canyon. After lining up the mules, Smith and Roberts started back up the trail. They both mounted the mule Roberts had ridden down. The doubly loaded mule lost its footing, rolled down to the next switchback with the men about 50 feet. The last drop was 18 feet straight down. The two men were taken to the hospital where Smith died from a fractured skull. Roberts recovered, and so did the mule. More than 100 tourists that were lined up near the top witnessed the tragedy. Smith's wife and daughter also worked at the Grand Canyon. He was buried in the Grand Canyon Pioneer Cemetery. In 1957, famed cowhand guide and handyman Shorty Yarberry died at the age of 81. He had been employed by the canyon since October 1921. He built the rock wall around Phantom Ranch and also planted many of the cottonwood trees there. At least once a year, he let both his white hair and beard grow looking for all the world like Santa Claus in a cowboy outfit. He died in the Grand Canyon Hospital and was buried in Grand Canyon Pioneer Cemetery. During July 1953, about 24,000 Boy Scouts came to the canyon as they traveled to and from a National Scout Jamboree at Santa Ana, California on 53 specially scheduled trains with a total of 113 Pullman cars. The Grand Canyon community spent months planning on how to handle this massive invasion of boys. As a precaution against trail accidents, 
It was announced that the Bright Angel Trail would be closed to mule traffic and reserved for hikers only. Rangers would be on duty 24 hours per day. All kinds of Boy Scouts came in like a tidal wave at Grand Canyon Village this week. Many of the boys took hiking trips down the Bright Angel Trail. Most of the trips were on a tight schedule and only went down part way and back up. Special snack booths were set up, netting a nice $700 of profit. 27 Explorer Scouts led by Professor S.W. Warren of Cornell University came west from Ithaca, New York in 1956 to make a north-south crossing. They said, Six or seven times we had to take off our shoes and wade across Bright Angel Creek. It took them seven hours to reach Phantom Ranch, where they quickly got into the swimming pool. They camped without tents or sleeping bags, only carrying down food, a canteen, and ponchos. They hit the trail again at 1 a.m., crossing Black Bridge in the dark and hiking on the river trail to Bright Angel Trail. It was a steep trail on the south side, and about every 20 minutes we would stop and hit the sack for 10 minutes. They were awarded with breakfast at Indian Garden, reaching the South Rim and their bus driver at 10 a.m. In 1957, nine Boy Scouts led by Bill Long and Paul Sanchez from Tucson, Arizona accomplished a five-day double-crossing backpacking trip to earn their 50-miler awards. Also that year, 26 Explorer Scouts from Logan, Utah, led by Dr. Sterling A. Taylor, a soil physicist of Utah State University, made a two-day north-to-south crossing. They had to wade across Bright Angel Creek seven times while at flood stage. Howard Clark, age 13, an Eagle Scout from Buckeye, Arizona, hiked north to south across the canyon during the heat of late July in 1963 with his brother and father. The temperature at the bottom was at 114 degrees, but they were able to finish in 13 hours. The Boy Scouts in Arizona started to offer rim-to-rim patches to those who completed the hike. A rim-to-rim-to-rim patch appeared in 1963. Publicity for the patches were being published in national scouting magazines. In 1963, a 50-mile hike craze burned across the country, attracting more hikers to the canyon. Arizona State College and Flagstaff started to organize large rim-to-river and back hikes. Warnings were offered by the wise. It is more rugged than anything you have ever pictured. Despite its famed beauty, the canyon is a natural killer, and hardly a year goes by that it doesn't claim at least one life in some way. In 1955, it was stated, A person can pack a sack and descend the twisty Kaibab Trail on foot without a guide or fee. However, the penalty for running out of energy within the canyon can be high. It is possible to telephone from any of the several stations along the trail and have a mule sent down to carry a person out, but the charge is high. Travel light is a wise motto. We spent the night down in the canyon at the lovely Phantom Ranch. The river is a wistful dream. Guys, green and vast. A 1955 description of Phantom Ranch read, 
you'll arrive at Phantom Ranch, the unique and comfortably attractive deep-down resort at the bottom of the canyon, in time for a dip in the spring-fed swimming pool, or a hot shower if the pool is too icy for you. The ranch is famous for its all-you-can-eat, family-style meals. A two-day adventure to the ranch and back by mule, including food and lodging, was $32.75. In 1955, a third of the 2,500 Phantom Ranch guests descended into the canyon on foot. Manford Slim Patrick and his wife Dottie managed Phantom Ranch. They doctored many hikers for blisters and injuries as severe as sprained ankles. Most of the hikers requiring aid didn't know what they were getting into. The trash from Phantom Ranch for years was dumped directly into the Colorado River. Slim would load up a cart pulled by a mule and dump it right in the water. Thankfully, later they began to haul it up to the rim. Swimming in the Colorado River near Phantom Ranch was common when the river level was low. But the extreme danger was illustrated on June 20th, 1955, when Harold Nelson, age 30, a civil service worker from San Diego, California, was swept down the river while swimming without a life jacket with two others when the river was high. His body was found about two weeks later, about 35 miles downriver by a boating party who buried him and marked the spot. Alan Curitan from Williams, Arizona was the grandson of Prof. Thomas Curitan, see episode 136. When he was 17 years old in 1954, he accomplished his first rim-to-rim hike with his father, Carl Curitan. They backpacked with 20-pound packs, covered only about 12 miles per day. On the way back on the Tonto Trail, camped at Burrell Spring, they were startled by a low-flying helicopter. Their campfire attracted the helicopter, which was looking for a lost hiker from Los Angeles. The helicopter landed, and upon discovering the mistake, took off again, while the hikers, who were not lost, breathed a sigh of relief, for the sight of the helicopter approaching brought fears of emergency news from home. They continued on the Tondo Trail all the way to Hermit's Rest, making a long double crossing of more than 60 miles. The lost hiker was found stuck on a cliff and rescued. By 1962, Curitan had made 48 trips into the canyon, including a long 90-mile hike lengthwise. When the North Rim closed each year during mid-October, it was not evacuated for the winter of all workers. During the winter of 1955-56, Louis Dutch Hillis, age 59, and Violet Hillis, age 58, maintained the North Rim alone from October to May, living up in a cabin. To borrow a cup of sugar, Mrs. Hillis had a choice between snowshoeing 44 miles northward to Jacob Lake, Arizona, or taking a long step down the mile-deep chasm to Phantom Ranch. The couple would read books in the evening by gas lantern and keep warm by a wood-burning stove. During the day, they would shovel deep snow from rooftops, including the 50-foot water tower. They would snowshoe from cabin to cabin and feed the squirrels. 
Periodically, they would receive supplies from a strange but effective snow vehicle on skis from Jacob Lake. Mail was delivered to Phantom Ranch, requiring the tough hike down and back to retrieve. The thing that they missed the most was newspapers, but they would listen to one radio station. In May, 180 employees would return to host the 45,000 tourists that would arrive during the season. During the early fall of 1957, Margaret from Window Rock, Arizona, took a mule trip with her husband and another couple down to Phantom Ranch. They were the only visitors at the ranch and were taken care of by two wonderful caretaker couples. On their return 10-hour trip on mules, including Russ, they spotted a very unusual sight for the first time. We saw a rather portly man coming bounding down the sharp turns, and we asked him why the hurry. He replied that he had made a quick date with the river. We commented to ourselves that the poor foolish men would probably die from a heart attack at the rate he was going. But we saw him coming back while we stopped for about an hour at Indian Garden to eat lunch and rest. We learned that only three days before, he had boarded a plane from his native Switzerland to fly to America for a vacation. Running up and down these steep slopes was just like play to one who had spent a lifetime climbing the Alps. During May 1959, one of the greatest hoaxes in the canyon history took place, hoodwinking park authorities. On May 13, 1959, a deserted canoe was fished out of the Colorado River near Phantom Ranch. Included was a log document attached to the canoe by a string that indicated that Earl L. Francis, age 27, an artist from San Manuel, California, had left Lee's Ferry a week earlier on an unauthorized solo canoe trip, and his last log entry was two days earlier. A search by air began up and down the river for Francis. The next day, Francis was seen floating down the river above Phantom Ranch in a life jacket with his dog, Cadillac, under his arm. Men on shore yelled out. Francis, in total control, angled toward the shoreline, and he was pulled out by a ranch hand. He was brought to Phantom Ranch for a nice dinner and was described as being in, quote, good shape, despite not eating for three days and spending hours and hours in the cold water. Francis told a tale that he swam about 30 miles downriver with his dog for three days and stopped for the nights. He was allowed to stay at Phantom Ranch, brought up by mule, and then put up in a hotel for several days until he recovered. He then went back down and hauled his 70-pound canoe up the trail out of the canyon. His story was covered by newspapers all over the country. There were several problems with it that apparently no one ever figured out. One, the details of his tale to the press changed in each interview. Two, he never gave details about how he got by the mini rapids. Three, his canoe arrived at Phantom Ranch only a half day before he did, even though he stopped for three nights. Four, it would have been impossible for a dog to remain with him for all those river miles without being tethered. Five, there were many places before Phantom Ranch where he could have exited and hiked out of the canyon. No one seemed to question these inconsistencies. 
It is speculated that he brought his lightweight canoe down the South Kaibab Trail during the early morning of May 13th, set it afloat later in the day, and then waited until the next day to make his entrance floating in the river. A few years later, Francis built an unauthorized hermit house on public land in the Catalina Mountain foothills above Oracle, Arizona, at a mining claim. After 18 months of wrangling, the government told him he must go. He said that he would never leave the hills, that he was a pioneer prospector in modern times. On August 15, 1966, he sat on a keg of dynamite a few yards from his home and lit the fuse. Death was immediate. On March 5, 1964, 18 famous astronauts who were part of the Gemini and Apollo programs hiked down the South Kaibab Trail to Phantom Ranch, staying overnight and then came back up using the Bright Angel Trail. The trip was part of a geological training program. A NASA official said, The trip will prepare the astronauts to be competent geologic observers to know what they're looking at and how to properly observe geologic features on the lunar surface they may encounter. Alan Shepard, the first American in space, and Scott Carpenter, the second American to orbit the Earth, were the most well-known, leading a group of new astronauts who had not yet been into space. Neil Armstrong, who would be the first man to set foot on the moon, was among the group. He had previously been down to the canyon. Jay Goza, a chief wrangler, joked, I hope they aren't afraid of high places. The Phantom Ranch manager, Ben Clark, reported that the astronauts arrived in the evening and, quote, looked real good, with nobody crippled up from hiking, but they were very hungry. They ate a hefty amount of roast beef, mashed potatoes, carrots, peas, cake, and coffee, and then retired early. They were pretty serious young men, and very nice, and they seemed to enjoy the canyon very much. Both Shepard and Carpenter were particularly enthusiastic about the canyon. The pool temperature was down to 39 degrees, and none of the astronauts felt like taking a dip. In the morning, the men left Phantom Ranch at 7.45 a.m., hiked up to Indian Garden, ate lunch, and then rode mules to the top. Eight refused to take the ride and instead made the hike up the rest of the way on foot. Shepard reached the top first at 2.05 p.m., beating the mules by an hour. The following day, the group met with Boy Scouts and held a press conference. Shepard said, I'm just an old farm boy from New Hampshire, but to me the Grand Canyon was very impressive indeed. Eleven more astronauts also took the trip into the canyon the following week. Stay tuned for more Grand Canyon Rim to Rim history. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.